1: Hello and welcome back to Working Overtime, a show where we focus on the creative process. I'm your host, June Thomas.
2: And I'm your other host, Karen Hahn. Hey, Karen, how you doing today? I'm so great because I get to rip it up with you. Oh, my goodness. Rip
1: it up. We're ripping it up. <laughs> <laughs>
2: All right. So, so what is the topic of the day for today?
1: So today I wanted to talk about writer's block, specifically how the Apple TV Plus show Dickinson portrayed it. But before we get to that, I'm curious, is writer's block something that has afflicted you?
2: it's a good question and sort of funny because I feel like I never think of it as experiencing writer's block. Like when I'm mm-hmm. sitting at my computer and just staring at my screen and not getting any words out, I'm never like, Oh, I have writer's block. I'm just sort of z- zoned out. You know what I mean? Or yeah, I'm just yeah. sort of sitting there thinking, I wonder why I'm not getting any work done. So I guess that's a long way of saying that I do experience it. Um, and I
1: feel like all of us do to some degree. Uh, what about yourself? Very similar. I've definitely blown deadlines or not written when I was supposed to be writing. So technically, I suppose I have. But I associate the term writer's block with those writers who are just absolutely, totally stuck. People Mm -hmm. who, you know, seem to lose the ability to produce words. People like Fran Lebowitz or Joseph Mitchell, like those extreme circumstances. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad to say I have never had to deal with... An issue on that scale. But I also (laughs) think that that kind of extreme situation is rare because most people who confront an inability to write on that scale would move on to another career. Like they, (laughs) they wouldn't be a blocked writer anymore. They'd be a functioning apprentice plumber or whatever. But, you know, even if it's not your job um, and you don't need to do it to like pay your bills, that doesn't mean it's fun not to be able to do something that you enjoy. Mm -hmm. So it does, it's good to have strategies for how to overcome it. Have you ever developed any strategies to defeat whatever we'll call our very, hopefully, minor (laughs) uh, brushes with writer's block?
2: I would say that my strategies are pretty similar to anything else that you would find in a pretty quick Google search of how to get over writer's block. Like, I really wonder if there's a better solution out there. But for right now, the best way that I've found to defeat writer's block or at least kind of get around it is to just do something different for a while. Mm -hmm. Whether it's like going to go take a walk, going to even just get a glass of water, do a puzzle, play a video game for a while, or like watch an episode of TV, just letting your brain kind of reset or do something else is an important thing to do. Um, But that said, if I'm on deadline, or I feel really pressured, sometimes I do just still sit there and think, I'm gonna get it done. It's gonna happen, which is not advice that I would really recommend to anyone.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree that like, just giving up for a brief period and yeah. just doing something else. That's, I think the thing has been most effective. Mm-hmm. For me, another technique uh, is to just start writing, you know, not full-on morning pages, it just doesn't matter what you write mm-hmm. kind of level of just writing. But, you know, coming at it with an attitude that you're not trying to fix your writer's block problem. You're just like starting the engine again, you yeah. know, just warming up. And I think that's been pretty effective too. And other people have mentioned that to me. Mm-hmm. All right, let's take a break. But when we come back, I want to evaluate the advice about getting over writer's block that was dispensed on the Apple TV Plus show, Dickinson. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Hey, working listeners. In this episode, we're talking about advice from a TV show. So we're wondering, have you developed any techniques or strategies after watching a show or a movie? or maybe you've conquered writer's block and would like to tell us how you did it share with us by sending an email to slate.com. or better yet give us a call and leave us a message at 304-933-WORK that's 304-933-9675 we'd love to hear from you
0: So, Karen, the
1: other day I was watching the TV show Dickinson, which, in case anybody hasn't seen it, it's a sort of comedic take on the early life of the 19th century poet Emily Dickinson, which is based, kind of loosely, but based on her life, and... And there was an episode in which Emily was struggling with writer's block. And there's a clip that we can listen to. But first, I should explain that in the show, Emily is basically possessed by poetry. (laughs) Like she's constantly scribbling down lines that seem to come to her, you know, with very little effort. And then in season two, episode four, which is called The Daisy Follows Soft to the Sun, that spigot of inspiration Suddenly dries up. She gets up one morning, she settles into write, and nothing. And so, after struggling for a bit, she goes downstairs, and her mother finds her complaining to Maggie, the family maid. And Emily is played by Haley Steinfeld, and Maggie by Darlene Hunt. And apologies in advance to Irish listeners for Hunt's <laughs> accent. I'm empty. Dried up. Void. A useless She's
0: got writer's
1: block. So after we've established that she's got writer's block, she takes action. She does what you suggested earlier, Karen, and she does something different. She goes birding with her father, and that helps for a minute, but it doesn't really solve the situation. It doesn't. It, it's just brief. But then they run in, as you do when you're in Amherst in the 1800s. <laughs> They run into Frederick Law Olmsted, uh, uh who's played in this case by Timothy Simons, also known as Jonah Amveep. And Olmsted is in Amherst designing a park. And when Emily asks him if he's ever been blocked, he says he hasn't. Let's hear from the show. So
0: what do you do when you don't know what to do? When I don't know? Yeah. I wait. How long?
1: That's nice. Huh? As long as it takes. Months, years. You must have so much patience. I'm making art that will last for centuries. Generations to come will enjoy my parks. My parks could save democracy itself, so can't rush that.
0: Do you ever get stuck?
1: No, I refuse to be stuck. Alright, let's pause there, not only to wonder at Olmsted's uh, self-confidence, <laughs> but also to, to ponder his advice. Because on the surface, I'm, you know, pretty convinced what's more important, making the best possible version of the work or sending something imperfect out into the world just to, you know, meet a deadline. And Olmstead thinks that you should keep going until you get it right, but That's not the most practical approach. And something that really struck me afterwards was it really fails to acknowledge the importance of the back and forth with a collaborator, an editor Mm -hmm. or a producer or whoever. If you strive too hard for perfection and you don't share your work, you're not able to get that benefit. So, okay, what do you think of Olmsted's advice?
2: I think he has a valid point in that sometimes you do have to be more generous with yourself and allow yourself time to process your thoughts or figure out exactly where a story is heading but at the same time I agree with you June in that it's also sort of impractical advice when you're not in a solo bubble or otherwise have a deadline of some sort sometimes you just don't have the luxury of time I don't think anyone in my circle has that luxury especially because time is money and sometimes you don't have money either so you just don't sometimes it's just not a luxury that's afforded to you.
1: Yeah, I, I imagine, I, and I this may, obviously this isn't always true, but whenever I come across people who get in those, like, they basically are stuck for years because mm-hmm. they're kind of paralyzed by knowing that the work is not as great as it could yeah. be, I just think, must have a lot of money. I mean, yeah. that, it's, it's kind of terrible. I absolutely that, agree. That's though. my response, but that's where, my, where I go and... Uh, I'm going to have to learn to atone for that, but yeah.
2: (laughs) I don't think it needs atoning. It's just true. Where If you're not producing any work for several years, the only way that you can really do that is if you have a cushion, a
1: financial cushion to fall back on. Agreed. I want to say, though, that's not the end of Olmstead's Insight. So talking with Olmstead helps Emily get out of her head. But then she realizes that she's anxious She's given one of her poems to an editor and now that's made her frozen. She's blocked because the editor has power over her creative work, which is a kind of a new thing for her. Mm -hmm. And the way she puts it, being a poet, is I'm the daisy and he's the sun. And Olmstead says she cannot let that happen. Let's hear. Opinion is a flitting thing. It's a hideous distraction from the beauty of your craft. Okay. Then maybe I shouldn't try to have an audience at all. Maybe fame is dangerous. I mean, I gave one poem to one man, and now I have writer's block. The audience is irrelevant. The work itself is the gift, not the praise for it. Understand that? And you'll understand true mastery. You're right. I know you're right, but how do I do it? It's simple. Refuse to be the daisy and start being the sun. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that's, you got to admit that was a pretty romantic moment. I, and to be clear, it wasn't a romantic scene in the <laughs> show. But that feels like oh my god! Imagine like having a conversation on that level about creativity. That's so hot, right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's for a different podcast.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Um, That's for working thirst.
2: Oh, I mean, not a bad
1: idea. (laughs) Coming soon to a podcast player (laughs) you. All right. So let's talk about that advice. So Emily seems pretty convinced. And and I was like, all, you know, ready to like, yeah, go, Emily. But is she right? Like, yeah, again, maybe on a completely ideal level, the work is its own reward. But... (laughs) Once again to be this practical person, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I don't think that it's praise that motivates creative people. Yeah, I mean, it's nice, nice to have, but it's also a desire for engagement, for feedback, for you know the back and forth of making something and putting it out to the world. What do you think? I
2: think you can't work solely because you want someone else to engage with your work, whether it's in the more collaborative sense that you describe or for praise or for fame, which I think are very distinct entities, because you can never know how your work is going to resonate with people now or in the future. Um, At the same time, I don't think the audience is irrelevant because what you make is going to be consumed by somebody, and that kind of outside judgment will change the conversation around your work, whether you want it to or not. Like, I'm thinking of when I was um, studying art history in college, we were talking about how exhibits are laid out, will affect how people view the art. And it also is, there's no way to create an exhibit that isn't somehow touched by what the curator is doing. There's no way to just present that artwork. And then there's also artists who like weren't appreciated in their time, but have become sort of rehabilitated over time and become more appreciated. And that's something that you don't have any control over as an artist, but probably would find valuable. Like- I don't know. This is so stupid, but I think about that, like Doctor Who episode, you know, where he goes back in time and meets Van Gogh and like in his time, he was not appreciated at all, but then he takes him to the future and he sees like how much people love his artwork and it is very affecting. And I mean, the episode ends depressingly anyway, but the point being, that's not something that you as an artist have control over again and can have positive results. Like you can't totally shun an audience and there's no way to not have an audience unless you really mm-hmm. are like, here's my diary entry, it's in my diary, it's padlocked, no one will ever read this, I'll burn these entries at, like when I die or something like that. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> and then you don't have to worry about writer's block. Yeah, I guess, you know, for the sake of, you know, to make a show in 30, 40 minutes, whatever the mm-hmm. length was, one of the great things about Dickinson is it, it does uh, vary a lot, so, you know, it's nice that they've got as much time as they need to share yeah. their message, but for the sake of TV they were able to say, this is the secret. I think, in fact, Just as there are lots of different things at different times that you're struggling with a failure to get done the work that you need to get done. Different things work at different times. There are all kinds of different motivations for doing Mm -hmm. creative work. You know, I think one of the things that is most effective at driving you to do something when you're tired or you're just not in the mood is kind of thinking about how it will sicken your nemesis or how it, will impre- <laughs> how it will impress someone that you want to impress and that is so shallow and something that's, that's so, so embarrassing but it's so motivational man mm-hmm. you just think well if i can get this done before you know that person gets their thing in the world or <laughs> this is really gonna make them mad when they see that like that is the way I've to get your I've never tried work done. that, but
2: now I will. Oh,
1: pick a nemesis and and just like yeah, that will clear writer's block. That's it's, it's so like, funny. Uh, yeah, it's like inhaling, uh, you know, <laughs> something to clear your nose. It, it's it's it's
2: really I feel like that's a whole other episode. Like the benefits yes. of having a nemesis to your creative yes. process. <laughs>
1: We'll return to Nemesis on another episode, but for this week, I think we might be done. If you like the show, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have ideas for things we could do better or questions you'd like us to address, we would love to hear from you. You can send us an email at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK.
2: If you'd like to support what we do, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com/workingplus. You'll get bonus content including exclusive episodes of How to Do It and Big Mood Little Mood, and you'll be supporting what we do right here on Working. It's only $1 for the first month. Sign up at slate.com/workingplus.
1: Big thanks to our producers, Cameron Drews and Kevin Bendis. We'll be back on Sunday with a brand new episode of Working, and in two weeks, we'll have another Working Overtime, perhaps about Nemesis. (laughs) Until then, get back to work.